my life mission is to help, at least help humanity defeat aging. Come on, we're, we're gonna die, we're dying. In Europe, in, in some, like in Germany and Spain, there's transhumanist parties, transhumanist candidates. We're trying to get into the parliament. Wouldn't you want to live like a thousand years? People are like, no, why would you, who would want to live so long? Hi, I'm Must Reader, and this is my podcast on rationality, transhumanism, and trends of development of human society. Today, here with me is Yuri Dagin, a Russian-Canadian transhumanist, a longevity activist, and a biotech entrepreneur. Hi, Yuri. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, you said in one of your interviews that your life mission is to defeat aging. That's right, yeah. How did you come to that idea? <laughs> well, it wasn't a uh, straight path, that's for sure. Uh, just gradually, I guess, uh, once I became kind of enamored with the ideas of, of transhumanism and radical life extension, at some point I, I realized that, you know, if there is to be a mission in my life, then trying to help humanity defeat aging or cure aging, as I say, because I think it's a disease, must be it. And so I, I put it up on my banner, like on Facebook. And whenever people ask, like, do you have a mission in life? Yeah, I guess this is it. You know, uh, just trying to do my part. If Initially, it was just activism. And these days, it's actually something more practical and trying to develop a therapy that could help humanity first extend life a little bit. But eventually, I think we have a mission as humanity in general has a mission to uh, get out of our genetic, uh, you know, handcuffs and kind of rebel against our genetic overlords that for millennia have used us as just their proxies for just copying and replicating the genes without actually, you know, caring about our feelings or about our personalities and about our own desires not to die. And so I think we have a mission to change that, to rebel against the genes and then to learn how to use the genes for our interests, which are, first of all, first and foremost, not dying and not growing old and being, you know, as healthy as we want to be for indefinitely, essentially. So I guess it's a long-winded answer to, to your question that, uh, yeah, I guess my life mission is to help, at least help humanity defeat aging. Yeah, it's a great mission, I think. Um, please tell our audience, those that don't know about your project, how are you actually working on this? Sure. Well, yeah, the project you're probably referring to is Ethereum Genetics. That's the startup yeah. I founded in 2017. It's dedicated to translating, which means creating a therapy out of science, for those people who are not familiar with you know, the biotech lingo, uh, creating a therapy out of like very recent scientific results that are called epigenetic rejuvenation, uh, essentially kind of modulating the genes to uh, get them to a younger state so the organism essentially rejuvenates and uh, its lifespan is greatly increased. And this is a very new field. The experimental scientific results were only like the published in, well, the first ones were in 2013, but really the groundbreaking result was published in 2016. So it's very, very fresh. And in 2017, I found a Ethereum because I thought it's that important. That result was so important that it must be translated as soon as possible. It's one of the things, one of the gripes I have with like the scientific community is that 
I don't see enough kind of sense of urgency in academic researchers about trying to create therapies as fast as possible to prolong lifespan. It seems that, you know, scientists are content with the research taking decades and, you know, just publishing papers without actually creating therapies that should really halt this uh, very quick degeneration and degradation that we see in our bodies and for, for us and for our loved ones and for our children to have any chance of greatly extending lifespan of reaching longevity escape velocity, I think we, we really need to have something very soon, something revolutionary very soon. Otherwise, you know, we really don't have any meaningful life extension therapies or approaches at this point. And uh, I think we should all approach aging with the same sense of urgency as if we all had cancer or, or, or HIV. And I don't see that. I don't see that in, in, in researchers. I don't, I don't see that in, in, in many transhumanist activists. You know, we're content with just, you know, you know, reading the latest papers and discussing them in very kind of mellow tones without really challenging the, the scientists behind the science and the, the politicians who are funding the scientists to really, you know, do something as quick as possible, like people did in, in the 80s when the, you know, HIV epidemic struck and people were dying of AIDS when, you know, mere months, there was a huge public outcry. People were like, you know, we're dying here. We need something urgently developed. We need a cure. And that helped. I mean, they developed really great antiretroviral um, medicines within like a decade. And right now, People with HIV live essentially almost as long as people without it. Yeah. And initially, people were dying like in, in like a year or two years. That was just a remaining lifespan. If you were diagnosed with HIV, uh, you're almost guaranteed to develop AIDS within like very soon, and then you would die shortly thereafter. And because of the pressure, because of the activism, uh, they like scientists got a lot of funding and a lot of sense of urgency to develop cures as fast as possible. And I don't see that in aging. <laughs> and Why again, do you think uh, it is like that? Why is there no sense of urgency? Well, I, uh, I don't have a, really a, an explanation that I could point to and say this is it. But maybe it's just like it's very hard to, to change people's mindset. And even people studying aging still think it's something, you know, natural. It's part of life. It's very bad. But, you know, we're just going to approach it uh, maybe. Most scientists that don't have the sense of urgency think about it as just a scientific topic that they want to approach, but they really don't believe themselves that there's something possible to be done about it in their lifetimes. I don't think they think that, you know, oh my God, they're going to have a breakthrough that in 10 years will turn into a therapy and will prolong lifespan by, I don't know, 100 years. I don't think they believe that because we're all raised with this kind of learned helplessness that aging is just there and it's really complex and there's nothing we can do about human aging. Maybe we can prolong lifespan in mice and nematodes, but really... Like the history of life extension or gerontology is 100 years of failure, right? Because people were prolonging lifespan in mice, in, in, in flies and in nematodes, but nothing really that could translate into the human domain to prolong lifespan and say, okay, like uh, in 1950s, they discovered that caloric restriction prolongs lifespan and say by 1970s, they translated into humans, and then all of, all of a sudden humans started li living like 50% longer. That didn't happen. A lot of the things that extend the lifespan in, in animal models just didn't work in humans, didn't even work in primates. Like caloric restriction didn't work in primates. Although, again, academic researchers will, will make you think that it did because it extended lifespan by like, oh, 10% for females and maybe 5% for male rhesus monkeys, and that means it works. Well, not really. I mean... 
10% is not good enough. I don't want the 10% life extension. I want, you know, 100% life extension at the very least. So saying caloric restriction works to me is, is a misnomer. It doesn't work. You don't want to be starving like two thirds of your life, like those monkeys for 10% life extension. That's not a therapy that works for me. And so, but it's great for academic research because you can make a whole career out of it, right? Sure. Uh, you can, you know, publish papers, go to conferences and, uh, you know, out of this one experiment that does like 20 years of uh, publications and, and presentations and all these kind of like, now there's a methylation clock analysis of the blood biomarkers collected for those restless monkeys that shows that, you know, uh, yeah, there is a little bit of a slowdown of the methylation aging or aging in the methylation clock, but really, really like the result, the end result to me is, is not, is not, not even not impressive. It's just meaningless. You know, what's, what's 10% exp uh, life extension if you have to start for, a, for it, start for it two thirds of your life. And uh, again, <laughs> I'm, I'm taking uh, like very long winded answers to simple questions, but I guess this is a discussion, right? So this sure. is uh, when I'm having, you know, discussions with friends over maybe a glass of wine, this is where it all goes. So let's just pretend that we had a glass of wine and we're just talking without any filter. And, and really, I, like, I probably, a lot of the things I just said, probably people don't really say in public. There's a lot of, like, private uh, discussions that people are, um, there's a lot of politics, too, in, in, in transhumanism academic research on longevity, gerontology, anywhere. And, and so there's a lot of things that like people don't say it to other people to their face. Nobody like at the conference will say, oh, your results suck. What, just 10% life extension? Like, get out of here. This is garbage. Nobody's going to say that. People present papers on like 2% life extension. They have curves, like survival curves that you can barely tell apart. And nobody says like a negative word, word out in public. So there's all kinds of um, uh, etiquette, right? That That... In academia, you're just not supposed to, to challenge people like that. You just do your own research. If you have something cool, you, 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 report, you report on your results kind of by yourself. And so, you know, this is like, a, I guess, self-fulfilling prophecy of everybody's content with the lack of progress in, in uh, life extension, in, in longevity. And, I mean, at some point you become kind of, you become drawn into this, 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 I don't know. Uh, I don't have a good word for this. It's just that you don't really want to. First of all, if you try to stick out, you get put down and quickly learn not to kind of be the the jerk in the room, right? Because you don't really want other people to. Nobody likes being challenged. Nobody likes jerks, and uh, you just you know you kind of learn to play the game and just have a you know, reasonably comfortable life being an academic researcher, doing your research, publishing your papers, and maybe you build a career and, and just climb the academic ladder. But you're not solving the problem. You're not solving the problem of immediately finding something that works for extending lifespan. Because if we don't, we're going to die. Our children are going to die. Our parents are going to die. And to me, I want to have, I want to see that sense of urgency in the researchers that I have, but nobody, like when, when I really like lose the filter and, and say things like that, that come on, we're, we're going to die. We're dying. And this is not cool. Uh, like in, in, in <laughs> like academic conferences, that even those researchers who are supposed to be kind of sharing this vision that they look at me a little strange. And I think we need more researchers 
maybe like a new generation of researchers who are really passionate about it, who have the sense of urgency and, and they want to do like anything possible, everything possible to research the problem, find find something, find cures, or maybe even just um, if it's not curing aging, but at least extending lifespan, extending health span, anything that can be translated as soon as possible. And so coming back to the Ethereum, this is the this is the idea that I had when I started because I didn't see anybody starting startups to translate this paradigm. This was 2017 and I look around and still like uh, people don't seem as excited as I was about those results, about the paper on epigenetic uh, rejuvenation. And so I decided to do it myself. And uh, thankfully, right now, there are more startups. It's definitely getting recognized by even such like heavy hitters as Devin Sinclair out of Harvard and the uh, Vittorio Sebastiano out of uh, Stanford. He was actually one of the first labs uh, besides Bill Monte and, and, and Alejandro Campo, who published this paper in 2016. In Stanford, at Stanford, they had this kind of rival group that also was involved in epigenetic reprogramming. That was Vittorio Sebastiano and, and his student, Jay Sarkar. They finally started a company. It's called TurnBio, and it's also uh, trying to translate this as soon as possible. They're talking to the FDA to, to have clinical trials of, of their paradigm. Sinclair is talking to the FDA to, to do his thing with the AAV, the, the, the virus delivery of the genes. And Mike West, Ajax, he also kind of threw his hat into the ring and, and is trying to uh, do some some um, partial reprogramming for, for rejuvenation. Can you explain what exactly uh, you are doing uh, in research of uh, epigenetic rejuvenation? Sure. So so the idea, first of all, what, what is re epigenetic rejuvenation? I very briefly touched on it that you just kind of return the organism to a younger state, but like how exactly do you do this? The thing is, uh, first of all, what's epigenetics? Like very briefly, epigenetics is just the control of gene expression by various methods that, uh, you know, we have different different mechanisms of having different genes kind of active or silent in, in different cells. But basically, each cell of our body has the same DNA, like all the same genes, every cell, doesn't matter, your brain cell, your skin cell, it has the same DNA. But obviously, they're very different cells. Why? Because different genes are active. Your skin cell has different active genes than your brain cell. And so how are the, how is it, what are the mechanisms that are you know, controlling this? Those are called epigenetic mechanisms. There's different ones. There's like DNA methylation. There's histone modifications. Like histones are things that DNA is wound around. But... The thing is, okay, great, but like, why do you think that there's a, a way to have kind of younger epigenetics and older epigenetic, epigenetics? Well, we know this because it was discovered that there's actually such a thing as epigenetic clock in, in organisms, in humans, in mice, in different kinds of, kinds of mammals, that is very accurate to your uh, chronolo chronological age, basically your biological clock. And this was discovered by many people, but the most famous epigenetic clock is the one by Horvath, Steve Horvath out of uh, UCLA, out of California. And so we know that people of the same age have the same epigenetic signature, epigenetic clock. And this is, this is very surprising because you would think that, you know, maybe aging is a, this kind of stochastic process that happens randomly. And so why should everybody who's kind of 80 years old or 40 years old or even five years old have kind of the same profile 
of epigenetics as the people of the same age. Regardless of how healthy Regardless, they are. No, well, no, it correlates to their health because it's actually a biological clock. So if your biological clock says you're 80, but your passport says you're 70, you're actually older, biologically older, meaning you have a higher chance to die. Like biological, biological clock is your essentially true measurement of your chances of dying. And the problem is that aging is what drives our chances of dying to rise exponentially as time goes by. And different species at a different rate. You know, for a mouse, mouse dies within two and a half years, its biological clock just skyrockets much faster than, than for a human. But uh, so we know that, first of all, so we discover that, oh, there is this epigenetic clocks in each of us that uh, takes with aging. The second idea is, was, okay, does it really slow down if we kind of use the known life-extending therapies, say, in animals, or say, caloric restriction? Does that slow down your biological age? Does that slow down the methylation clock? It turned out it did. And various other approaches like rapamycin and, and, and uh, maybe metformin that they studied, they showed that it actually slows down the ticking of the methylation clock. And so the, the, the next idea was to try to use Yamanaka factors, which are very powerful uh, transcription factors that can reset epigenetics back into embryonic state. So say your skin cell or your brain cell is now 40 years old or whatever, and it turned out in 2006 that you can take the cell and essentially turn it back into embryonic state, where you reset its age, you reset its any kind of hallmarks of aging, it might have accumulated during those 40 years. And you essentially, first of all, you can now create a new organism out of those, you know, reprogrammed cells. Just create a clone of yourself with, with uh, re age zero, right? It will be just a new baby, fully healthy with reset chances of dying. And it's, it's fully possible now. Yeah, yeah, they, they've done it. They, they've created embryos. And I think mice, uh, healthy mice actually born out of... Uh, reprogrammed cells. That With they, the same DNA. Yeah. Yeah. They, I mean, same DNA is mm. in the cell that they reprogrammed. And like the, the cloning of the, where they just took the nucleus, that was done like, well, Dolly the ship, yeah. the sheep. Long ago. Long ago. And even before that, the, the first, the groundbreaking experiments with uh, uh, frog, frog DNA, frog cells were done in like 1960s by John Gurdon. And he got the, the same Nobel Prize. He shared Nobel Prize with Yamanaka, with Shinya Yamanaka, who discovered those four factors can, that can reprogram any cell back to this embryonic state. And so th the idea was by some research, researchers, including Alejandro Campo and his group at Belmonte, why don't we try to, to use these uh, factors, Yamanaka factors, in an actual animal and, and see if we can reset, not reset epigenetics back to embryonic state, but roll back epigenetics to a younger state without actually causing this resetting. Because resetting doesn't just rejuvenate a cell, it turns it back from, like say, a skin cell back into this pluripotent, essentially a stem cell that does not do the job of a skin cell or brain cell. Because, you know, there's functional, functional cells that, you know, perform the, the, the job of the organ, but, and then there's stem cells that don't have any function. The, the, their function is to you know, proliferate and, and then differentiate into the cells, any type of cells, including you know, if you need to build a kidney, you need to build a brain, that you know, all starts back into, from the stem cell. So we don't want to, to go fully back to embryonic state because, in an animal because that will mean that you, know, you're, you lose your function of, of the organs. We want to just you know, a little bit 
you know, roll it back, roll back your epigenetics. A little bit younger. Yeah, essentially, essentially. And uh, that was, was, that's what was done in uh, 2016 in this groundbreaking work by the Belmonte Lab and got me interested in, in epigenetic rejuvenation. And even before that, that was done in, in vitro, in, in, like in, in the test tubes with all sorts of cells. And it showed that it restored like their, their physiology. It uh, alleviated like various hallmarks of aging. And that was essentially the, uh, the uh, uh, kind of the idea to replicate in vivo in animals that, that they were seeing this magical rejuvenation in vitro. And so they thought, can we do this in animals? And it turned out, yes, we can, with some caveats. Obviously, it's not easy. If you uh, overdose on those human factors, mice start dying precisely because their organs de-differentiate and lose the function. And even like the, what's even worse is that they start forming teratomas, those like cancerous tumors from pluripotent cells. So it has been done uh, in mice yeah. only? In, in mice, in progeric mice, in special kinds of mice that are fast-aging mice. It hasn't yet been replicated in normal mice, and this is like the, the current state-of-the-art of various labs trying to replicate this now in, in standard animals, because the paper that was published in 2016 only did this in fast-aging mice, called progeric mice. And uh, I mean, this, this is one of the probably biggest points of criticism by people who don't believe in epigenetic reprogramming, that this is just an artifact of the model. And they say, once, you know, come back when you can replicate this in, in uh, normally aging mice. It's like the Elon Musk, uh, you know, timeline, like, talk to me when you get yeah. a booster reused. And so there's a bunch of those for uh, skeptics of the epigenetic reprogramming. And so this, we, we're currently at the level of talk to me when you can reproduce this in normal aging mice. But the problem is, as with many other uh, solutions to fighting aging, that uh, solutions that work really effectively for mice or other animals don't necessarily work too well for humans, as you already said. Yes, yes, absolutely. And this is, again, once we surpass the talk to me when you can reproduce in normal aging mice. The next one is talk to me when you can reproduce this in primates or maybe dogs or any other kind of animal with a longer lifespan, closer to the human lifespan. But why I am optimistic about the, this particular approach is that, uh, first of all, the, the epigenetic clock is, is very similar across species. So I think the epigenetic aging program in mammals is very similar. It's conserved, save for the speed of it. Like it's it's a very like you can look at the how a mouse develops, and look at how a human develops, and it's a very similar path of development in in terms of uh, like relative speed, but it's very different absolute speeds. Like a mouse develops like within you know a couple of weeks, it's already almost I think maybe six weeks it starts fully to be fully sexually active. But for a human, it takes 14 years. But in terms of like the percentage of life, it's just the, like the, the, the first like 7% of, of your life, you already like, quickly develop to be uh, a reproductive, uh, to be reproductively competent. But uh, so this life history is, is very, very similar for mammals. So I think the, the aging, obviously the, the maturation process, and nobody doubts this, is conserved. Like the embryonic process, it's like the embryo of a mouse looks... And, and size-wise, it's very similar to human embryo at, at the initial stages. But for people, t for some reason, the 
to say that the aging program is conserved is, is, is blasphemy to many researchers. But uh, coming back to, to, to the point, is I think if we master this epigenetic rollback in mice, I, I think the gains that we can have in humans are, are very uh, potentially high, higher than, say, for example, if you starve a mouse. The, that's why we don't see it in long-living animals, because I think this is a specific program, the starvation life extension program, which I think is meant for quickly reproducing species like uh, to uh, outlive, uh, say, periods of starvation. So f the, the problem for mice is that they have to reproduce quickly because there's a lot of predators uh, and th they have a very high death rate in the wild. So they have to have like 12, 15 pups per liter, uh, like, you know, little mice per every time they reproduce. Uh, but for humans, it's very different. But for mice, if there's a, like a period of, uh, say, hunger, starvation, they need to... Uh, be able to survive this period and then kind of reproduce after it. And it's very cyclical. Usually it's like, uh, like on an annual basis uh, or, or maybe biannual basis when this, the, the mice have uh, like the kind of the harvests, if, if you will. So they have this kind of built in into them that if there is this kind of pro, pro, pro period of starvation, then they can they get like a, an extension of their life to be able to uh, wait it out, and then once you know the conditions normalize, they can then breed and and have the like the, the next generation, and then they can die. Uh, but in humans and in long-lived animals, I don't think there is this kind of program, precisely because we already live very long and we already will kind of sur survive or out outweigh outweight. The, these periods of starvation. So that's the difference between uh, it's, it's, your it, method and uh, I, I starving. Mean, th this is the kind of the intuitive difference. Uh, I think that that's why I, I'm much more optimistic about this 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 approach than, for example, caloric restriction. And of course, I'm I'm. This is kind of retrospective after I know the results of the uh, monkey experiments with caloric restriction. That's that's why I think this is what why we don't see the same translation of. 50% life extension in, in rats or mice translated in, into long-lived animals like, uh, like rhesus monkeys. Uh, we need to do experiments for sure and, and have to prove this, but uh, intuitively, that's why I, I think we have a good chance of having uh, significant gains if we master this approach. And this is not a, like a one-time thing where, uh, for, or like for example, if you take rapamycin, uh, it, it acts on like the one target, the target of rapamycin, and you get just the like the the life extension from this interaction. This particular approach of epigenetic rejuvenation acts systemically on the whole organism, and the idea is that you can do this periodically. You can periodically roll back epigenetics, and uh, that that way, if we actually you know, master it and and are able to truly bring back our biological clock to previous setting, even if, you know, after some period, it, it returns back to the kind of the, the original setting. If we do this periodically, I think we can get a very significant life extension precisely because we humans are, like live so long. And it, these processes, this kind of aging well, program or just aging process takes a lot of time to, to develop. And that's why if we're able to roll it back, by the time it develops again, we can do this periodically and have much, much greater life extension in absolute terms than for, for, for a mouse. So in the hypothetical world of tomorrow where this technology works, 
humans will visit uh, doctor regularly for those uh, rejuvenation uh, um, <laughs> it's i think it's a bit too early but we can fantasize let's just fantasize uh and again this is not a a prediction this is at this point a fantasy which i hope is materialized but uh, the way we see it and the way like the Ethereum's approach is to have a gene therapy. And this is actually where our paths diverge from, say, Sinclair or, or Turnbio, who don't really want a, like a, a persistent gene therapy. They really want, uh, say, gene products to be injected on like an ongoing basis. But we at Ethereum actually want a gene therapy that integrates once in your body in all of your cells or a high proportion of your cells, maybe not all tissues need to be targeted, maybe just some tissues. That's actually, you know, the uh, target of our research at this point to, to figure out which tissues are important and which aren't. And so you would, you know, use this gene therapy once. It will integrate the, the genes, the reprogramming genes into all your cells, and which normally would be silent, like without a special molecule that you would need to take regularly to activate those genes, those genes won't, won't do any work. So, you you know, nothing is you know, messed up in, in your body if you don't take the, the special activator molecule. Those genes are silent. But maybe, you know, once a month or you know, maybe once a week, I hope not, or maybe once a year, you need to activate those genes and roll back the epigenetics. Initially, of course, under careful supervision of like doctors, researchers, and monitoring that you know you don't get any cancer or you don't lose any function in your organs in which those genes are active, and then you and you monitor did it really roll back your biological age? And if if it did, then you know you're free to go for another week, month, year, and then you come back and you know take this you know pill essentially like. In mice, it, it, they use doxycycline, a very common antibiotic. It's uh, very cheap. And uh, then you do this on an ongoing basis, essentially, you know, rejuvenating yourself at uh, specific intervals that will be determined in, in the research, how often you need to do this. Are you optimistic about uh, longevity research? Do you think that uh, within a decade or maybe several decades, we will have some break, breakthroughs? I am and I'm not. <laughs> I, I definitely, I am, I'm sure eventually humanity will figure it out. Uh, I'm pretty optimistic it'll do so in 50 years, that there will be essentially a therapy for aging, a cure for aging. Uh, but within like 10 years, I don't know, as I said, I don't see enough sense of urgency in the researchers to, to have this, first of all, created, these therapies created as soon as possible, and second of all, translated. Because it's not enough to create them in a the lab. You actually need to conduct clinical trials. First of all, you have to convince the regulators like the FDA or the, like the Russian health agency that you're allowed to do this. And they're still hesitant about like curing aging. Like FDA doesn't think aging is a disease or, you know, World Health Organization doesn't think aging is a disease. So like clinical trials will take time. But that said, there's a good chance like within 20 years, that there will be uh, therapies that can significantly prolong lifespan. Five to ten years, there could be something that can increase health span, maybe have uh, a little bit of a lifespan increase, like senolytics or, or other therapies, maybe uh, anti-reverse uh, um, transcriptase, uh, some 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 because there are some HIV dr drugs that already like inhibit reverse transcriptase, and there's retro elements that are in our genome use reverse transcriptase and they could actually do some bad stuff 
maybe we can inhibit them with existing therapies and, and some other things that are kind of in the clinic right now, but I don't see them being huge, huge life ex extension therapies. Uh, but uh, I mean, uh, so the simple answer to the question, am I optimistic? I I'm cautiously optimistic that, you know, with the, within a short time frame, we can have meaningful life extension that will get us like to the next hurdle. This is the concept of longevity escape velocity that if we can extend our lives within five to 10 years by maybe another five to 10 years, this gives us you know, extra time to wait for the breakthrough therapies that will kind of come in maybe in 20 years or 25 years and will prolong our lifespan, our lives even, even, even higher, even greater. And so I'm, 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 Cautiously optimistic that uh, not only in our lifetimes, but maybe for the in the lifetimes of our parents, there there'll be something that can also help them get to this longevity escape velocity that we all so so covet. You highlighted the fact that uh, there is not enough uh, sense of urgency about uh, the problem of uh, aging. Mm -hmm. Do you think this is connected uh, with the fact that transhumanism is not uh, a popular concept and uh, is maybe like marginalized uh, in the society? Yes, and, and maybe this is a consequence. The, definitely transhumanism is is thought of by mainstream society as something marginalized, something of a bit of a freak show and something crazy. Something creepy, like... Creepy, yeah, like, oh, what, you, try, you want to become a cyborg. And the, the thing is, like, there's very different kinds of transhumanists, and there's, like, the vanilla transhumanists who are really just regular people who want to use, you know, technology and medicine for just the benefit of humanity. And, but those are not the people who get highlighted in the press in those articles in, in, on Facebook that the media being kind of the people who really need sensations and need to kind of sell papers or buy clicks or sell clicks. They want sensationalism. They want something that will make people recoil. And so they put up those you know, people like the grinders who implant chips in their bodies or have some kind of weird facial modifications and they call themselves transhumanisms, transhumanists, and this is how transhumanism then becomes defined in, in or stereotyped in, in, in society at large. And um, but also this is maybe a secondary issue. The primary issue is that just society at large is okay with dying. People are okay, or they think they are, with the concept of you know getting old and dying. And when you tell them. And I was the same when I just first heard about it, that wouldn't you want to live like a thousand years? People are like, no, why would you, who would want to live so long? And they start saying all those kind of the same cliched things that everybody says when they just first hear about this concept of radical life extension, like overpopulation, you'd get bored, blah, blah, blah. And so I think it's just our inherent conditioning, learned helplessness that we as children grow up with the baggage of the previous, you know, thousands of generations of before us who died and really couldn't do anything about aging uh, because, you know, they didn't have the tools, the, the, they didn't have the science, and we, we probably are the first generation to actually have a chance to do something about it. We, we are the first ones who have genetic engineering and all these sorts of tools that were just, you know, science fiction 20 years ago. And, of course, maybe that's why we have this the psychological tool of denial and learned helplessness as a result to be able to not, you know, waking up in horror every day, knowing that we're going to die and there's nothing we can do about it. 
and I think Aubrey de Grey put it pretty, pretty well in one of our conversations, is that like for thousands of years before us, we couldn't do anything about aging. And so if you can't do, about, can't do anything about something, then your desire to do something about it is, is, is useless. It's, vanishes, it's yeah. irrelevant, yeah. Um, but now, and maybe people don't know and don't realize, or just because they're conditioned to think that aging is okay. First of all, we, that, that's the, the thing is we need to change then the society to first think of the aging as something bad and something that we can do something about. And what about you? How did you change your mind? You said that you were just like those people. Yeah, absolutely. It was gradual. In denial. In denial. Yeah, and, and the thing is, because I was in, in like in pharma, even before I was a transhumanist, and so I, I was kind of working on things against, you know, prevent death and disease. And like, they, they seem totally cool, or I, I was totally cool with like curing Alzheimer's, curing cancer. But when, when you, you're presented with the idea of why don't you just cure everything and just not die? To me, that was, again, like very, very unusual thought because I was just coming from traditional like back, background of, of people thinking about death as something natural. And, you know, and this is the thing. You have this kind of the psychological blocks from changing your, your views, changing your beliefs. And when someone challenges your beliefs, then, you know, dying is okay. And they're like, no, dying is not okay. You recoil and you're like, no, I'm, this is my belief. I need to defend it. And so you start throwing out like those things that you think prop up your belief, like, oh, I'm doing this for humanity's sake, earth's sake, you know, I'm willing to die so there's no over, overpopulation. And you throw this kind of snowball at, at the person trying to uh, get you interested in the idea of not dying. And they're like, no, you know, earth is going to be fine. There's definitely not, not a reason to mm -hmm. keep dying. And you're like, oh, it's going to get boring, so I don't want to live long. And it, But then, you know, when you're kind of, you, you go away and you just think about it on your own, You're not challenged by, like, because I think this happens when you, we're challenged externally, we recoil and we defend our position. But when we kind of, in, we're not challenged, just, you know, sit and think on our own or maybe read a book <clears throat> and just think about things without any preconceived notions, keep an open mind. And you realize that, yeah, it totally makes sense that you should live as long as you want. I mean, why wouldn't you want to live as long as you want? At some point, if you stop wanting to live, then you die. Why should this be kind of ex made external on you when you should die and when you should get sick? And then it's just, you know, being able to logically think this through without emotional preconditioning to, that you have to defend your position. I think that's what helped me realize that, damn, I was wrong. You know, my views were wrong and probably when presented with convincing evidence, rational people should change their wrong views. And so that's what I did. And the more I thought about it, the more I read, the more I kind of learned about you know, biology, I realized that, damn, yeah, this is something that we should do and we're able to do. Today, we have the tools or tools are emerging. When I started, I don't know, it was six, seven years ago, tools were emerging that we were just about to be able to do the things that I thought, and I still think we need to do to radically extend our lives, which are you know, genetic engineering or epigenetic engineering, because I really think it's the genes, stupid, uh, that control our aging. And we need to be able to manipulate our genes, whether you know, uh, epigenetically or with genetic engineering. 
Well, you said that uh, a rational person changes uh, his or her mind uh, once presented with uh, evidence. Mm -hmm. But the problem is that uh, most people don't. And I think Eliezer Yudkovsky in his uh, essays uh, uh, at Less Wrong website said that uh, most people, when they encounter rational evidence against uh, their point of view, they grow even more confident in their point of view, trying to defend it, as you also said. So how to talk to people, uh, maybe older generation, conservative people who, who, who don't want to change their mind, how to speak to your parents or grandparents who, for example, don't buy your arguments that they should uh, think about cryonics. Do you have any experience in this? I do. I mean, I, I tried to convince my own parents to sign up for cryonics. So was I failed. You failed. Uh, well, at least at this point, because I think they just decided to uh, silence me. They said, yeah, yeah, okay, we'll think about it. Just not now, like a little later. So you have signed up for cryonics? I have signed up for cryonics. And, and after that, you, you tried to convince Yeah, or in peril. I was like, yeah. look, I'm signing up. Come on. Why, why, did you just don't, why don't you just sign this document in peril? I'll just get you copies and, you know. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, the older we get, the more closed our mindset becomes. And this is just biological reality. Probably serves some biological function. So... It's definitely harder and harder to talk to older generations. And maybe at some point, there's just nothing you can do to change their minds. Or, you know, maybe there's just some segment of population that, again, there's nothing you can do to change their minds. But the hope is that you can get to younger people who are, you know, biologically more open to, to learning, to new ideas, who, whose minds are still open and who can change their beliefs. And so I think that... The, That's the that's the kind of the, the right approach is to, as always, with new ideas, you have to just, I know it sounds awful, but you have to wait until the people who espouse their own ideas kind of die off or give way, although this is not a very transhumanist thing to say. But unfortunately, this, this is the reality of how things are changed in the past, how society has changed in the past. And uh, we just see like it's the new generations, they grow up with new concepts and i think this is what's going to happen this is happening actually because like the way we talk about transhumanism with the way we talk about longevity now is vastly more uh you know friendlier to this idea than five years ago uh like much more many more people even older people so it's not necessarily like just the young young person's uh, game even even older people are much more friendly and also there's like a secondary effect that If someone's children start embracing these ideas, then the parents, like looking at the children, start thinking, okay, maybe it's not a bad idea after all. And, and so I think the answer to your question is we have to target the younger people, the younger audiences who are open-minded, who grow up with kind of the values systems closer to our, our own and who are able to maybe change their worldviews and to understand that they kind of the principles that they grew up with from their parents about aging and about dying and about wanting to die were wrong. And that it's totally okay to have a different perspective and to even, you know, have a differing opinion from, from your parents. And I think this is the, the, the way to slowly, unfortunately be a slow process, slowly change society and have eventually a generation of politicians that will come in and will fund this research 
or even maybe this current generation of politicians will hear the constituents who are now like 18 or, or maybe 15 and maybe will be 18 by the next election in the States to change, change society and, and, and have gradually more and more people or maybe can have kind of the, this, this critical mass of people come to the realization. I think we don't need to change society like 100% of society. We need 10% of people to believe that this is something. Yeah, active minority. Yeah, exactly. Like, exactly. like the one that starts a revolution. Exactly, yes. This is where I'm going with. Yeah, exactly. So, and I think we're, we're almost there. I mean, I don't think we have 10%. I think right now maybe we have like 2 or 3%. But like the, the growth is really exponential. We need like those... You know, just a bunch of people being active and then we'll get to 10% within a couple of years, I think. And we're seeing this already like in Europe, in, in some, like in Germany, in Spain, there's transhumanist parties, transhumanist candidates who are trying to get into the par parliament. And that's, that's the way to increase awareness, first of all, because, you know, regular people didn't even hear about transhumanism until they, you know, started following the election and they saw what this... You know, candidates about what eradicating death—that sounds crazy—and then they start researching, and then they're like, "Oh, okay, maybe it's not not a bad idea after all." And so, yeah, I think this is the the way we have to go about to to popularize and eventually change society to to create this kind of demand demand for research, demand for a uh, sense of urgency in the researchers. And uh, I'm I'm pretty optimistic that you know we will within you know very short period of time. I'm more optimistic about this change in society than I'm about like practical research results in the time frame of five years. I'm definitely optimistic that society is moving to the right direction and it's changing fast. Well, I hope that uh, these changes will come as fast as possible. We really need this. If you like this video and if you like transhumanism and maybe want to help uh, humanity spread the world spread the word uh, share this video with your friends with your relatives maybe talk to them about these topics uh, try to plant a seed maybe something will grow out of it thank you so much Yuri thank you uh, subscribe to my channel write in the comments section whether you liked what Yuri told us today and uh, whether you want any new guests speaking about transhumanism I'm Greg Mastreeder, see you next week.